Hey there, grace and peace to each and every one of you. It is Captain Roger from the Salvation Army's Grass Valley Corps, and this is our Worship in Study Time online. Thank you so much for joining us this week, as hopefully you do every week. Um, you know, we are in the book of Acts, and uh, at the end of Acts chapter 20, Paul and Luke and the others traveling with them were speaking with the elders from Ephesus when the time came for the ship to sail and Paul and his crew had to get on board. So that's where we're starting today. Flip to Acts chapter 21 at verse 1. Now, I know I read this scripture out to y'all, and uh, if you're there in person, I put it up on the wall, things like that. But you know what? It's always good to look this stuff up for yourself. Don't trust anyone. We all get up and as pastors, we like to say, well, the things in this book can change your life. Well, they can. And you should double check and make sure that whatever we're telling you is in there is actually in there. Right. Don't trust anyone. Or perhaps I should say trust, but verify. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm reading today from the New International Version 2011 edition, which is what we have been using throughout the book of Acts. And um, Acts chapter 21, verse 1, is where we're going to start. Verses 1 through 3, in fact. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, and went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Now... I know, this is like a travelogue. No one really wants to hear the itinerary of someone's trip, which is, you know, that's why Luke tends to group these things together just to give you an idea of what's going on, and then he'll get into the story here. Um, they're at Tyree. They're trying to unload from their, their ship, and frankly... In the first century, unloading from a large merchant ship could take a long time. Usually, took a few days, could take a couple of weeks, or if it's a really large one, some of them took more than a month to just shift and move and unload that cargo. Um, ships also, they would only sail if the conditions were exactly right. They had to make sure the weather and the wind and the tide and the time all lined up. And captains in those days often did an omen check by making a sacrifice before they sailed. So bad omen meant no sailing. So for whatever combination of reasons, Paul's team was there in Tyree for a few days. Verse 4, Acts 21, verse 4. We sought out the disciples there. And stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well, that's what Paul's doing, right? That's like his whole mission. But why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, for one thing, he's delivering an offering from the Gentile churches to help the poor of the Jewish churches. He hoped that it would cement the two groups together in a stronger way, even though they had so many differences. Now, it's not going to work out that way. But he doesn't know that yet. And he wants to be there to see this gift bring people closer to God and to each other. I'm going to suggest there might also be a little ego in his insistence on being part of this coming in. Um, we know that he has struggled with his fellow Jews, both those who believed in Jesus as the promised Messiah and those who didn't. Um, and the main struggle he had is over this idea that Gentile believers didn't need to become Jews before they could be saved. And Paul, he could lay it out from the scriptures and he could point to the teachings of Jesus and the proof of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of Gentile believers. 
But people tend to be stubborn about how their way is the best or only way, especially if they might need to admit that they are wrong about something otherwise. This offering, which is at least the second of its kind from Gentile churches to the Jewish faithful, it was a fulfillment of a scriptural prophecy from... Well, from the Old Testament, uh, as we would think of it. And it's also um, a fulfillment of this request from the elders of the Jerusalem followers of the way that the Gentile believers continue to remember the poor. Remember, they, they said that in the letter they sent out in Acts chapter 15. We ask that you continue to remember the poor. In short, for Paul, he might have expected this delivery of an offering to be a little bit of an I told you so moment because of the the benefits that the home church, as it were, is going to receive from these new churches. But maybe I'm reading a little too much into it. I, I, I do that sometimes. I very much relate to Paul in some of his attitudes. I'm not comparing myself to Paul in any other way, but uh, I do relate to his attitudes. Now, why else did he want to go to Jerusalem? Well, a couple of chapters and about six months ago, um, in fact, Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we read that all, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So this is the plan Paul made. He's going to make a long, looping journey to Jerusalem, and then he's heading on to Rome. But then there was the riot there, and he needed to stay longer in Ephesus than he'd planned, and then his journey wasn't quite the smooth sailing he expected it to be, and he started to get a bad feeling about what he was heading into. And last week we talked about how he said he was going to Jerusalem because he was bound by the Spirit to do so. And some folks read that to mean that God's Spirit is leading him on. I think maybe it's something else. I don't know. We're never told either way here, but I suspect he may have unwisely vowed by the Holy Spirit that he would make this journey. That's the kind of thing Jesus said not to do, but it's something people did all the time, usually thoughtlessly. In fact, they still do this all the time. How often have you ever sworn by something without giving it much thought? Oh, I swear on my mother's grave. Oh, by God, I will do that thing. By all that's holy, I'm going to act this way. Or, this is one I think we're all guilty of at one time or another. Oh, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll... Yeah. You get the picture, right? So, Paul has decided to do this thing. And now he has spiritualized it, either deciding that God must need him to do this thing or realizing that he made a vow he didn't want to break. Or maybe it's something else we're not told about. But what we are told is that during the week he's in Tyre... Um, and back to Acts 21.4 here, just the last part of it. It says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Oh, now Luke is light on the details here. <clears throat> A lot of times when people think something goes without saying, they don't say it. I think that's what's happening here. There's what It sounds like people are getting a Spirit-given message that going to Jerusalem was going to work out badly for Paul. So they're like, hey, don't go. Now, apparently none of them brought a message from God saying, Paul, you are forbidden to make this trip. Because I wonder what he would have done then. Still, especially given that he told the Ephesian leaders he wasn't coming back and that he was always expecting to be persecuted and jailed, 
He's already decided to go. He already expects bad things are going to happen to him. It may not have been hard for him to tune their message out. And as soon as he had the chance, he sailed. Verse 5. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So everyone came to see him off. And Luke makes a point of mentioning wives and children specifically so that we would realize this was kind of a big deal. They're not just sending him off with a see you later. They're thinking of this as a final farewell. People are like bringing their kids. They're like, oh, you got to meet the uh, great evangelist Paul. We want to make sure that you know everything you can from him because we're never going to see him again. Verse 7 says, We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, you remember Philip, right? From chapters 6 and 8. He was one of the seven guys chosen to set up a food pantry that helped everyone without discrimination. He was someone who brought people into the faith who hadn't been allowed before starting with that Ethiopian who was a eunuch, and then preaching through Jewish and Roman cities until he ended up here in Caesarea, the uh, Roman capital of the Roman province of Judea. Apparently while he was here, Philip got married. He fathered four women who are gifted leaders among the followers of the way. Uh, Something a lot of people just skip over. Oh, four girls who prophesied. Well, Elsewhere in scripture, Paul has uh, is uh, taught that prophecy is the number one gift among the leaders of the, the church and that uh, it's the gift that everyone should hope for. So he's got four young women who are prophesying. They are four leaders in the church. They are guiding the way that people think about and uh, do life with Jesus here. Someone else from an earlier chapter is about to reappear here as well, not just Philip. Uh, Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. You remember Agabus? I'm sure you remember Agabus, right? From Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, which say, uh, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So this was like not very long after Paul had come to believe in Jesus. Agabus came to the city that Paul was at. And he spoke this message to the followers of the way there. And as a result, Barnabas and Paul had gathered and taken an offering to Jerusalem so that the believers there would be able to weather the famine which was coming. Agabus was well regarded as a prophet, as as someone who spoke God's message to people. And now he's here specifically to warn Paul that bad things are going to happen if he insists on going to Jerusalem. 
verse uh, 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Which kind of leads to this question. How do we know what the right thing to do is? Maybe we're given some guidelines which can help, right? Start by flipping back a few pages to um, Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 11. It says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. All right, so that's the first guide. Check the scriptures. Check the scriptures and see if they support whatever it is that you're teaching or you want to do or you're thinking about. See if there's any information there that can help you understand what might be going on, what might be happening. Are there any scriptures which tell us if Paul's decision might put him in danger? Well, yes, there are dozens of examples of God's agents being attacked, arrested, and persecuted without cause, especially in and around Jerusalem. And Paul knows this from his own history as well. But is it going to sway him? No. He's already expecting bad things to happen to him in Jerusalem. So he may very well agree with this prophecy, but without understanding that it should change something in his decision process. So it's the second test of uh, of scripturally discerning the truth. Well, in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus is speaking and he says, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So that means the spirit is sharing truth to guide you, to guide each one of us who has that God's spirit placed in us when we believe in Christ. Now, Paul has this message from the spirit that bad things are going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. Instead of taking that as a message that he should do something else, he is taking it as a commission to go. So the spirit has sent a message through the believers in Tyre. Don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things will happen. And Paul's like, yep, bad things will happen. I'm going. And so now Agabus is here with a message from the Holy Spirit. Look, if you go, the Jewish leaders are going to tie you up and give you over. And again, Paul is unfazed by this. But is there any reason to think he should be taking these messages? Is it anything other than confirmation of his own belief that he needs to go and let bad things happen to him? Well, there's a third test of whether a thing is right. All right. What does your faith community think about it? Remember in Acts 15 how there were two groups of believers who had radically different ideas about what it meant that Jesus had initiated this new covenant? One group said people needed to behave one way, and the other said, well, they don't need to do that. So what did these two disparate groups do? They trusted the community to lead them in the right direction. Acts 15, verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So what's happening? The community is debating the issue. And the community together comes to a conclusion, and they share it with the parties involved, who then listened to that and followed that guidance as best they could. So, in this case, Paul knows from Scripture people often do bad things to God's agents. The Holy Spirit has told him, both directly and through other witnesses, that going to Jerusalem would be bad for him. And the community, including his closest companions, have all begged him not to go. So what does Paul do? Look at verse 13. Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? 
I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Ah, Paul. I saw a great post last month where a woman described how a guy said that people change their minds when confronted by the facts. And she said that that wasn't right. And she linked two studies that prove that they do not. And his reply was, well, I still think it works. See, we suck at admitting when we're wrong. Often, like Paul, we're not even open to the possibility there could be another way or that our understanding might be off. But I suppose I could be wrong about this. If there had been this much evidence in anyone else's life that they shouldn't go to Jerusalem, I'm pretty sure Paul would have told them not to go. But since it's him, and he's already convinced that bad things need to happen to him, he doesn't find any reason to change his mind. I wonder what might have been if he hadn't gone. But there's no way of knowing. He was not swayed. He decided he needs to go and die for Jesus. I think he should have decided to live for him instead. Luke wrote, verse 14, When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Now, if you remember nothing else from today's message, remember this. When faced with a situation where they were utterly convinced that they were right, and Paul was wrong, the other followers of the way left the ultimate decision in God's hands. The Lord's will be done. Not mine, even when I am sure I'm right. Now, who was right in this situation? Doesn't matter. The Lord's will be done. They didn't cut him off. They didn't refuse to associate with him any longer. They didn't shun him or work against him or try to prevent him from doing this thing. In fact, they continued to support his efforts despite their misgivings. Acts 21, verses 15 and 16, after this, Luke says, We started up on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Menasin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Hmm. Forgive me, a little dry in here today. Do you see that thing with Alistair Begg last month? He's a, uh, a longtime pastor of a very conservative evangelical church in Ohio. He advised a grandmother to go to the wedding of her grandchild who was marrying a transgender person. He said, not only should she go, she should bring a gift. He told her that even though she doesn't approve of same-sex weddings, she should show love for her grandchild instead of being thought to be judgmental, critical, and unprepared to accept them as a couple. Now, he didn't give her this advice like in private somewhere. He gave this advice at a public event where he was signing copies of his latest book, and because of that, word got out and a tempest started up in the evangelical teapot. So he preached a sermon in response, which I think is fantastic. Alistair Begg's a guy, he's got a big audience, he's got a radio show, a lot of folks would hear him and, and still can hear him because his sermon's online, it's going to last as long as the internet does. He uh, made sure his message was biblically supported from beginning to end, showing that Christians are to show compassion, not condemnation in all things. He pointed out that Jesus said we are even to love our enemies. 
He showed how the parable of the prodigal son teaches forgiveness over judgment, and the parable of the good Samaritan emphasizes compassion over claims of holiness. He said to watch out for Christians who seem unwilling to show grace, and to watch out for pastors who seem eager to condemn sinners. He has since said that if he needs to go down as being on one side or the other, he would rather go down on the side of compassion. And once this thing broke, he was very quickly removed from the keynote speakers of a pastor's conference that he had been scheduled to be at. His radio show has been taken off the American Family Radio Network. And rather than praying for God's will to be done, all these people are awfully sure that regardless of decades of ministry and evidence of the Holy Spirit working through him, that Alistair was just wrong in this one instance, and so he needs to be completely cut off and never allowed back. Imagine Paul's team. (laughs) Paul's team, they know that the Spirit has said, don't go to Jerusalem, and they see Paul saying, yes, obviously the Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem. And can you imagine them saying, well, you're obviously just wrong here. And so they just dump him in Caesarea. We'll see. As we work through these last chapters of Acts, Paul's not done. He's got a lot of ministry left to do. God's will is going to be done no matter what people may think. The people with Paul, at least, they're open to the truth that they could be wrong. And you know what? We don't know. Whether going to Jerusalem was God's call is not in Acts or in Paul's letters or in any of the stories about Paul. Remember what I said about God letting us all make our own choices? Paul made the decision to go to Jerusalem. For whatever reason, he would not be swayed, even when the Spirit made it clear that it was going to be bad. But he made this decision, and he faced everything that came as if it were an opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. Which it was. Because everything is. Wherever you go, just remember, pray for God's will to be done. And remember also, that what you think God's will is might be wrong. Stay open to the opportunity to use whatever situation you find yourself in as one where you can share the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Not everyone's going to be happy about that. But that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do. Remember, Jesus said to leave the 99 sheep behind to find the one that's lost, and that there's going to be more rejoicing over that one than all the rest. It is God's will that you love the lost. And I encourage you to test that statement by checking scripture, by listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and by discussing it in your faith community. And if anyone disagrees, remember that God's will will be done. So you might as well stay on the side of compassion. Amen? Hmm. There's one of these things that some of you are going to be struggling with. And I get it. I certainly struggled with this for a long time before I uh, allowed scripture to inform my choices rather than the culture that I was enmeshed in. Let's try this. Let's seek a little unity. Here's something that most of us know or can come up with um, most of the words to, right? Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Now, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever state you think you're in, remember, you have nothing to fear because God is with you. Trust in God and go with God. Grace and peace to you this week. See you next time.